Granny's Wonderful Chair by Frances Brown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Readers for Chapter 5. Narrator read by Lynette Geisel. Storytelling Chair read by Phil Chenevere. Snowflower read by Cheyenne Darnell. Dame Sybil read by Joyce Couch. Sour read by ken felt civil read by david lawrence lord mackerel read by algy pug daughter one read by rashada daughter two read by beth thomas daughter three read by amy graymore mother of daughter three read by kalinda chapter five sour and civil once again King Winwealth wished to hear a story told by the wonderful chair, and orders were given for Snowflower to bring it to the king's hall. She again brought the chair and laid her head on the cushion, saying, Chair, my grandmother, tell me a story. The voice from under the cushion at once said, Listen to the story of Sour and Sybil. Once upon a time there stood upon the sea-coast of the West Country a small village of low cottages, where no one lived but fishermen. All round it was a broad beach of snow-white sand, where nothing was to be seen but gulls and other sea-birds, and long tangled seaweeds cast up by the tide that came and went night and day, summer and winter. There was no harbor or port on all that shore. Ships passed by at a distance, with their white sails set, and on the land side there lay wide grassy downs, where peasants lived and shepherds fed their flocks. There families never wanted for plenty of herrings and mackerel, and what they had to spare the landsmen bought from them at the village markets on the downs, giving them in exchange butter, cheese, and corn. The two best fishermen in that village were the sons of two old widows, who had no other children and happened to be near neighbors. Their family names were short, for they called the one Sour and the other Civil. They were not related to one another so far as I ever heard, but they had only one boat and always fished together, though their names expressed the difference of their natures, for Civil never used a hard word where a soft one would do and when Sour was not snarling at somebody, he was sure to be grumbling at everything. Nevertheless, they agreed very well and were lucky fishers. Both were strong, active, and of good courage. One winter's night, or summer's morning, they would steer out to sea far beyond the boats of their neighbors, and never came home without some fish to cook and some to spare. Their mothers were proud of them, each in her own way, for the saying held good, Like mother, like son. Dame Sybil thought the whole world didn't hold a better than her son, and her boy was the only creature at whom Dame Sour didn't scold and frown. The village was divided in opinion about the young fisherman. Some thought Sybil the better, some said without Sour he would catch nothing. So things went on till one day about the fall of winter, when mists were gathering darkly on sea and sky, and the air was chill and frosty, all the boatmen of the hamlet went out to fish, and so did Sour and Sybil. That day they had not their usual luck. 
cast their nets where they would, not a single fish came in. Their neighbors caught boatloads and went home, Sauer said, laughing at them. But when the sea was growing crimson with the sunset, their nets were empty and they were tired. Sybil himself did not like to go home without fish. It would hurt the high opinion formed of them in the village. Besides, the sea was calm and the evening fair, and as a last attempt they steered still farther out and cast their nets beside a rock which rose rough and gray above the water and was called the merman's seat, from an old report that the fishermen's fathers had seen the mermen or sea people sitting there on moonlit nights. Nobody believed that rumor now, but the villagers did not like to fish there. The water was said to be very deep, and sudden squalls were apt to trouble it. But Sour and Civil were right glad to see by the moving of their lines that there was something in their net, and gladder still when they found it so heavy that all their strength was required to draw it up. Scarcely had they landed it on the merman's seat when their joy was changed to sorrow, for besides a few starved mackerel the net held nothing but a huge ugly fish as long as Sybil, who was taller than Sour, with a large snout, a long beard, and a skin covered with prickles. Such a horrid, ugly creature, said Sour, as they shook it out of the net on the rough rock and gathered up the mackerel. We needn't fish here any more. How they will mock us in the village for staying out so late and bringing home so little. Let us try again, said Sybil, as he set his creel of mackerel in the boat. Not another cast will I make to-night. And what more Sour would have said was cut short by the great fish, for, looking round at them, it spoke out. I suppose you don't think me worth taking home in your dirty boat, but I can tell you that if you were down in my country, neither of you would be thought fit to keep me company. Sour and Sybil were very much surprised to hear the fish speak. The first could not think of a cross word to say, but Sybil made answer in his usual way. Indeed, my lord, we beg your pardon, but our boat is too light to carry such a fish as you. You do well to call me lord, said the fish, for so I am, though it was hard to expect you would have known how great I was in this dress. However, help me off the rock, for I must go home and for your civil way of speaking, I will give you my daughter in marriage, if you will come and see me this day twelve months. Sybil helped the great fish off the rock with as great respect as his fear would allow him. Sour was so frightened at the whole business that he said not a word till they got safe home. But from that day forward, when he wanted to put Sybil down, it was his custom to tell him and his mother that he would get no wife but the ugly fish's daughter. Old Dame Sour heard this story from her son, and told it over the whole village. Some people wondered, but the most part laughed at it as a good joke, and Sybil and his mother were never known to be angry but on that day. Dame Sybil advised her son never to fish with Sour again, and Sybil got an old skiff which one of the fishermen was going to break up for firewood and cobbled it up for himself. In that skiff he went to sea all the winter and all the summer. But though Sybil was brave and skillful, he could catch little because his boat was bad, 
and everybody but his mother began to think him of no value. Sauer, having the good boat, got a new comrade, and had the praise of being the best fisherman. Poor Sybil's heart was getting low as the summer wore away. The fish had grown scarce on that coast, and the fishermen had to steer farther out to sea. One evening, when he had toiled all day and caught nothing, Sybil thought he would go farther, too, and try his fortune beside the merman's rock. The sea was calm and the evening fair. Sybil did not remember that it was the very day on which his troubles began by the great fish talking to him twelve months before. As he neared the rock the sun was setting, and much surprised was the fisherman to see upon it three fair ladies with sea-green gowns and strings of great pearls wound round their long fair hair. Two of them were waving their hands to him. They were the tallest and most stately ladies he had ever seen. But Sybil could perceive, as he came nearer, that there was no color in their cheeks, that their hair had a strange bluish shade, like that of deep sea-water, and there was a fiery look in their eyes that frightened him. The third, who was not so tall, did not notice him at all, but kept her eyes fixed on the setting sun. Though her look was full of sadness, Sybil could see that there was a faint rosy bloom on her cheek, and that her hair was a golden yellow, and her eyes were mild and clear like those of his mother. "'Welcome, welcome, noble fisherman!' cried the two ladies. "'Our father has sent us for you to visit him.' With one bound they leaped into his boat, bringing with them the smaller lady, who said, "'Oh, bright sun and brave sky that I see so seldom!' But Sybil heard no more, for his boat went down miles deep in the sea, and he thought himself drowning but one lady had caught him by the right arm and the other by the left and pulled him into the mouth of a rocky cave, still down and down, as if on a steep hillside. The cave was very long, but it grew wider as they came to the bottom. Then Sybil saw a faint light and walked out with his fair company into the country of the sea people. In that land there grew neither grass nor flowers, bushes nor trees but the ground was covered with bright-colored shells and pebbles. There were hills of marble and rocks of spar. Over all was a cold-blue sky with no sun, but a light clear and silvery as that of the harvest moon. The fishermen could see no smoking chimneys, but there were caves in the rocks of spar and halls in the marble hills where lived the sea-people, with whom, old stories say, Fishermen and sailors used to meet on lonely capes and headlands in the simple times of the world. Forth they came from all parts to see the stranger, mermen with long white beards, and mermaids such as walk with the fishermen, all clad in sea-green and decked with strings of pearls, but every one with the same colorless face and the same wild light in their eyes. The mermaids led Sybil up one of the marble hills to a great cavern, with halls and rooms like a palace. Their floors were of white marble, their walls of red granite, and the roofs inlaid with coral. Thousands of crystal lamps lit the palace. There were seats and tables, hewn out of shining spar, and a great company sat feasting. But what most amazed Sybil was the number of cups, flagons, and goblets, made of gold and silver, of such different shapes and patterns, that they seemed to have been gathered from all the countries in the world. 
In the chief hall there sat a merman on a stately chair, with more jewels than all the rest about him. Before him the mermaids brought Sybil, saying, Father, here is our guest. Welcome, noble fisherman, cried the merman, in a voice which Sybil remembered with terror, for it was that of the great ugly fish. Welcome to our holes. Sit down and face with us, and then choose which of my daughters you will have for a bride. Sybil had never felt himself so greatly frightened in all his life. How was he to get home to his mother? And what would the old dame think when the dark night came without bringing him home? There was no use in talking. Sybil had wisdom enough to see that. He therefore tried to take things quietly, and, having thanked the merman for so kindly inviting him, he took the seat set apart for him on his right hand. Sybil was hungry with a long day at sea, but there was no want of fare on that table. Meats and wines, such as he had never tasted, were set before him in the richest of golden dishes, but hungry as he was, the fisherman felt that everything there had the taste and smell of the sea. If the fisherman had been the lord of lands and castles, he would not have been treated with more respect. The two mermaids sat by him. One filled his plate, another filled his goblet, but the third only looked at him in a hidden, warning way when nobody saw her. Sybil soon finished his share of the feast, and then the merman showed him all the fine things in his cavern. The halls were full of company, some feasting, some dancing, and some playing all kinds of games, and in every hall there was a large number of gold and silver vessels. But Sybil was most surprised when the merman brought him to a marble room full of heaps of precious stones. There were diamonds there whose value the fisherman knew not, pearls larger than ever a diver had gathered, emeralds and rubies that would have made the jewelers of the world wonder. The merman then said, This is my eldest daughter's dowry. Good luck attend her, says Sybil. It is the dowry of a queen. But the merman led him on to another room. It was filled with heaps of gold coin, which seemed gathered from all times and nations. The images of all the kings that ever reigned were there. The merman said, This is my second daughter's dowry. Good luck attend her, says Sybil. It is a dowry for a princess. So you may say, replied the merman, but make up your mind which of the maidens you will marry for the third has no portion at all, because she is not my daughter, but only, as you may see, a poor silly girl, taken into my family for charity. Truly, my lord, said Sybil, whose mind was already made up, both your daughters are too rich and far too noble for me. Therefore I choose the third. Since she is poor, she will best do for a poor fisherman. If you choose her, said the merman, you must wait long for a wedding. I cannot allow a girl of lower estate to be married before my own daughters. And he said a great deal more to persuade him, but Sybil would not change his mind. And they returned to the hall. There was no more attention for the fisherman, but everybody watched him well. Turn where he would, master or guest had their eyes upon him though he made them the best speeches he could remember, 
and praised all their splendid things. One thing, however, was strange. There was no end to the fun and feasting. Nobody seemed tired, and nobody thought of sleep. When Sybil's very eyes closed with weariness, and he slept on one of the marble benches, no matter how many hours, there were the company, feasting and dancing away. There were the thousand lamps within, and the cold moonlight without. Sybil wished himself back with his mother, his net, and his cobbled skiff. Fishing would have been easier than those everlasting feasts, but there was nothing else among the sea people, no night of rest, no working day. Sybil knew not how time went on, till, waking up from a long sleep, he saw for the first time that the feast was over and the company gone. The lamps still burned, and the tables, with all their riches, stood in the empty halls, but there was no face to be seen, no sound to be heard, only a low voice singing beside the outer door. And there, sitting all alone, he found the mild-eyed maiden. "'Fair lady,' said Sybil, "'tell me what means this quietness, and where are all the merry company?' "'You are a man of the land,' said the lady, "'and know not the sea people. They never sleep but once a year, and that is at Christmas time. Then they go into the deep caverns, where there is always darkness, and sleep till the new year comes.' "'It is a strange habit,' said Sybil. But all folks have their way. Fair lady, as you and I are to be good friends, tell me, whence come all the wines and meats, and gold and silver vessels, seeing there are neither cornfields nor flocks here, nor any workmen? The sea people are heirs of the sea, replied the maiden. To them come all the stores and riches that are lost in it. I know not the ways by which they come, but the lord of these halls keeps the keys of seven gates where they go out and in. But one of the gates, which has not been opened for thrice seven years, leads to a path under the sea, by which I heard the merman say in his cups, one might reach the land. Good fisherman, she went on, if by chance you gain his favor, and ever open that gate, let me bear you company, for I was born where the sun shines and the grass grows, though my country and my parents are unknown to me. All I remember is sailing in a great ship, when a storm arose, and it was wrecked, and not one soul escaped drowning but me. I was then a little child, and a brave sailor had bound me to a floating plank before he was washed away. Here the sea people came round me like great fishes, and I went down with them to this rich and weary country. Sometimes, as a great favor, they take me up with them to see the sun, but that is seldom for they never like to part with one who has seen their country. And fishermen, if you ever leave them, remember to take nothing with you that belongs to them. For if it were but a shell or a pebble, that will give them power over you and yours. Thanks for your news, fair lady, said Sybil. A lord's daughter, doubtless, you must have been, while I am but a poor fisherman. Yet, as we have fallen into the same misfortune, let us be friends, and it may be we shall find means to get back to the sunshine together. You are a man of good manners, said the lady. Therefore I shall gladly be your friend, but my fear is that we shall never see the sunshine again. Fair speeches brought me here, said Sybil, and fair speeches may help me back, but to be sure I will not go without you. This promise cheered the lady's heart, 
and she and Sybil spent that Christmas time seeing the wonders of the sea country. They wandered through caves like that of the great merman. The feast that had been left was spread in every hall, the tables were covered with the most costly vessels, and heaps of jewels lay on the floor of unlocked rooms. But for the lady's warning, Sybil would have liked to put away some of them for his mother. The poor woman was sad of heart by this time, believing her son to be drowned. On the first night, when he did not come home, she had gone to the sea and watched till morning. Then the fisherman steered out again, and Sauer, having found the skiff floating about, brought it home, saying the foolish young man was no doubt lost, but what better could be expected when he had no discreet person to take care of him? This vexed Dame Sybil sore. She never expected to see her son again, but, feeling lonely in her cottage at the evening hour when he used to come home, the good woman got into the habit of going down at sunset and sitting beside the sea. That winter happened to be mild on the coast of the west country, and one evening, when the Christmas time was near and the rest of the village preparing to make merry, Dame Sybil sat, as usual, on the sands. The tide was ebbing and the sun going down, when from the eastward came a lady clad in black, mounted on a black horse, and followed by a squire in the same sad clothing. As the lady came near, she said, Woe is me, for my daughter, and for all that I have lost by the sea. You say well, noble lady, said Dame Sybil. Woe is me also for my son, for I have none beside him. When the lady heard that, she alighted from her horse, and sat down by the fisherman's mother, saying, Listen to my story. I was the widow of a great lord in the heart of the East Country. He left me a fair castle and an only daughter, who was the joy of my heart. Her name was Faith Fainless. But while she was yet a child, a great fortune-teller told me that my daughter would marry a fisherman. I thought this would be a great disgrace to my noble family, and therefore sent my daughter with her nurse in a good ship, bound for a far-away city where my relations live, intending to follow myself as soon as I could get my lands and castles sold. But the ship was wrecked, the lady went on, and my daughter drowned, and I have wandered over the world with my good squire Trusty, mourning on every shore with those who have lost friends by the sea. Some with whom I have mourned, grew to forget their sorrow, and would lament with me no more. Others, being sour and selfish, mocked me, saying my grief was nothing to them. But you have good manners, and I will remain with you, however humble be your dwelling. My squire carries gold enough to pay for all I need. So the mourning lady and her good squire trusty went home with Dame Sybil, and she was no longer lonely in her sorrow, for when the dame said, Oh! If my son were alive, I should never let him go to sea in a cobbled skiff. The lady answered, Oh, if my daughter were but living, I should never think it a disgrace, though she married a fisherman. The Christmas passed as it always does in the West Country. Shepherds made merry on the downs, and fishermen on the shore. But when the merry-makings and ringing of bells were over in all the land, the sea-people woke up to their feasts and dances. Like one who had forgotten all that was past, the merman again showed Sybil the room of gold and the room of jewels, advising him to choose between his two daughters. 
but the fisherman still answered that the ladies were too noble and far too rich for him. Yet as he looked at the glittering heap, Sybil could not help remembering the poor people of the West Country, and the thought slipped out, How happy my old neighbors would be to find themselves here. Say you so? said the merman, who always wanted visitors. Yes, said Sybil. I have neighbors up yonder in the West Country, whom it would be hard to send home again if they caught sight of half this wealth. And the honest fisherman thought of Dame Sour and her son. The merman was greatly pleased with these speeches. He thought there was a chance of getting many land people down, and by and by he said to Sybil, Suppose you took up a few jewels and went up to tell your poor neighbors how welcome we might make them. The hope of getting back to his country made Sybil's heart glad, but he had promised not to go without the lady, and therefore answered prudently what was indeed true. Many thanks, my lord, he said, for choosing such a humble man as I am to carry your message. But the people of the West Country never believe anything without two witnesses, at the least. Yet if the poor maid whom I have chosen could be allowed to go with me, I think they would believe us both. The merman said nothing in reply, but his people who had heard Sybil's speech talked it over among themselves till they grew sure that the whole west country would come down if they only had news of the riches, and asked their lord to send up Sybil and the poor maid in order to let them know. As it seemed for the public good, the great merman agreed, but having made up his mind to have them back, he gathered out of his rich rooms some of the largest pearls and diamonds, and said, Take these as a present from me, to let the West Country people see what I can do for my visitors. Sybil and the lady took the presents, saying, My lord, you are too kind. We want nothing but the pleasure of telling of your wonderful riches up yonder. Tell everybody to come down, and they will get the lot, said the merman and follow my eldest daughter, for she carries the key of the land-gate." Sybil and the lady followed the merman through a winding gallery, which led from the chief hall far into the marble hill. All was dark, and they had neither lamp nor torch, but at the end of the gallery they came to a great stone gate, which creaked like thunder on its hinges. Beyond that there was a narrow cave sloping up and up like a steep hillside. Sybil and the lady thought they would never reach the top, but at last they saw a gleam of daylight, then a strip of blue sky, and the mermaid bade them stoop and creep through what seemed a narrow crack in the ground, and both stood on the broad sea-beach as the day was breaking and the tide ebbing fast away. "'Good times to you among our West Country people,' said the mermaid. Tell any of them that would like to come down to visit us that they must come here midway, between the high and low water mark, when the tide is going out at morning or evening. Call thrice on the sea people, and we will show them the way." Before they could make an answer, she had sunk down from their sight, and there was no track or passage there, but all was covered by the loose sand and seashells. "'Now,' said the lady to Sybil, "'we have seen the heavens once more, and we will not go back. Cast in the merman's present quickly before the sun rises." Taking the bag of pearls and diamonds, she flung it as far as she could into the sea. 
Civil never was so unwilling to part with anything as that bag, but he thought it better to do as the lady had done, and tossed his into the sea also. They thought they heard a long moan come up from the waters, but Civil saw his mother's chimney beginning to smoke, and, with the fair lady in her sea-green gown, he hastened to the good dame's cottage. The whole village was awakened that morning with cries of, Welcome back, my son. Welcome back, my daughter. For the mournful lady knew it was her lost daughter, Faith Fainless, whom the fishermen had brought back, and all the neighbors gathered together to hear their story. When it was told, everyone praised Sybil for the prudence he had shown, except Sour and his mother. They did nothing but rail upon him for losing such great chances of making himself and the whole country rich. At last, when they heard over and over again of the merman's riches, neither mother nor son would stay any longer in the West Country, and as nobody persuaded them, and they would not do what Sybil told them, Sour got out his boat and steered away with his mother toward the merman's rock. From that voyage they never came back to the hamlet. Some say they went down and lived among the sea people. Others say, I know not how they learned it, that Sour and his mother grumbled and growled so much that even the sea people grew weary of them and turned them and their boat out on the open sea. What part of the world they chose to land on nobody is sure of. By all accounts they have been seen everywhere, and I should not be surprised if they were in this good company. As for a civil, he married Faith Fainless and became a great lord. End of chapter 5